There's an old song. It was written by Hal David in 1965. Since then, it's been recorded or performed live by over a hundred different artists. It's a simple song. It just says, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that we have just too little of. What the world needs now is love, sweet love, not for some, but for everyone. What do you think? Does everyone need it? That's the easy part. Of course they do. Does everyone deserve it? Or is there anyone you think of who you feel don't deserve it? What about the people you don't like? What about the people who clearly wrong you? What about your enemies? Someone asked Jesus, what is the most important commandment in all the world? And, and I'm sure all of us know the answer to that here because we've heard about it lots of times. You shall love the Lord your God, Jesus said, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Then he went on, the second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on. This is interesting. All the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, hang on these two commandments. Someone has said there's no, more, there's no surprise more magical than the surprise of being loved. It's a touch of God's finger on a man's shoulder. When I express love to someone, I'm passing on his love. And here's the problem. It's easy to love the lovely. We talk about loving the lovely. Those who are responsive and love back. But what about those who really need it and don't know how to love back? What about those who are mean and rude and demanding and, and refuse to love back? It's surprising and I think even shocking when you think of it that our Lord doesn't just call us to love our brothers and sisters and kind of love them through thick and thin, the people around us. He actually calls his followers to love everyone, even those who have become enemies. Luke six twenty-seven and following is our passage for today. And it's a kind of a continuation of the series that Steve started or kicked off fools for Christ. Uh, 
Listen, and I think it goes up on there, yeah. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, this is not a preacher's rant. <laughs> it sounds like it could be made to order for a preacher to get up and start hammering on people, but that would cheapen it. This is Jesus' call, and there's something sacred and humbling and impossible and beautiful about this. And it may seem to be foolish to the world around, but it's a touch of grace, an experience of beauty to those who walk with Jesus and to those who are the recipients of someone walking with Jesus. Noble was loaned an intriguing book recently. It's called In the Land of the Blue Burkas. She told me as she read it, she said, you've got to read this. So when she was done, I did. The lady who wrote it spent four years in Afghanistan working for an NGO, a non-governmental organization, an aid organization. And over those four, ye- four years, she developed a lot of relationships with Afghan women. And she developed a beautiful way to share Jesus and plant seeds about Jesus, which is what she really was doing. They accept much of the Old Testament and the Gospels. They just say the translation is corrupted, but overall they accept it, and we probably forget that and don't use it like we should. And uh, so whenever she got the opportunity, she would bring up her honorable Lord Jesus and something special that he taught. One day she was visiting in a home with a number of ladies, and one husband was there, as I remember the part of the story, watching and listening as well, and they were talking about the conflict around, and she shared, she shared how one day the Honorable Lord Jesus said to the people who were listening, you should love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you. And the man in the room suddenly, with anger all over his face, burst out, jumped up and burst out. That's wrong. That would never work. If someone wrongs you, you have to retaliate. You have to retaliate ten times as much as they did to you, or he'll just do it to you again. Now, we raise our eyebrows knowingly about that attitude and say, well, that figures. But I have a feeling that in our Western world, our Western culture, the people might not express anger like that, but they would express just as much disbelief that such a thing is possible or appropriate. To many people, this is foolish dreaming. But you know what? I have a feeling that many Christians, especially when they've been wronged, aren't that sure about it either. It's way too hard. Let's pray. Father, as we have finished singing our worship, now we're opening our hearts to you. May we worship by hearing your word and being doers of your word. And I know that you will take us through that if we're willing. In Jesus' name, amen. Christ's call to love may not be easy, 
But his call is exciting and powerful, and our world needs it. I want to share with you what I might say are three game-changing facts in this passage that clarify God's amazing love and make it personal to us. Maybe I'll word it this way, that clarify God's amazing call to us to love, both of which are amazing. The first fact is that God's call to love is positive. It's not negative. Christ's love doesn't consist in not doing certain things to people, but in doing certain things. Love is not what we don't do to others. It's about what we do. And that's terribly important. Christ's love is very much a positive expression. When I was a kid, I, one of the things I learned in Sunday school was the golden rule. How many of you learned the golden rule? Eh, not necessarily everybody did. Um... Can you still quote it? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Golden rule. Now I was kind of surprised to learn years later that most of the ancient civilizations had equivalents of our golden rule. It kind of disturbed me for a little bit. I thought this was just straight from God. Well, I think it was. You've got to listen to this. Uh, Philo, the, the great Jewish teacher, said, this was how he expressed it. What you hate to suffer, do not do to anyone else. Isocrates, a famous Greek orator, said, What makes you think, what makes, what things make you angry when you suffer them at the hands of others, do not do to other people. The Stoic philosophers of ancient Greece put it this way What you do not wish to be done to yourself, do not do to any other. Jesus said, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. So the difference is pretty obvious when you underline the verbs. Jesus' golden rule is the only rule that's expressed in positive terms. All the other statements are framed in, a, in, a, in the negative. So in the, really, in the teaching of the wise philosophers, and is, is that my goodness is ultimately in what I don't do. And we have a Western secular equivalent, and if you've tried to witness to family or talk about the Lord, you probably have heard it. It comes something like this. Well, I live a good life. I don't hurt anyone. It's, comfortable. it's uh, commendable, of course. I mean, this is good. I'm not knocking it. It's commendable when people actively avoid hurting and destroying and fighting, and we could use a lot more of that for sure. There are too many people who are selfish, competitive, vengeful, and destructive. But listen to Jesus again. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Or we could put it just in plain language. Whatever you would wish people to do to you, do for everyone around do for everyone around you. Now you and I know that that would never fly in society. This is foolish. We hear things like this and maybe have said them ourselves. If he's going to keep treating me like that, I won't ever talk to him again. No one who does that deserves a second chance. Don't you dare do that to me again or you'll be sorry. I won't even dignify it by trying to get even. I'll just turn away and do my own thing. I read a delightful story in Reader's Digest a few years ago by J.P. McAvoy. 
He said, years ago I brought my two little girls home from Cuba in the late spring and put them in school down the road. They talked with a peculiar accent and nobody knew them and their classmates really gave them a rough time, especially Lola, the dark-eyed daughter of the town barber. She was a little older and she was the terror of the tiny tots. Pat and Peggy, he said, came home crying almost every day. So after a while, he said, I decided to try to cheer them up. I said, let's have a party. And their tears dried up like magic, and right away they got creative and have ice cream and cake and big red balloons. And friends, I added. And the tears started again. We haven't got any friends, they wailed. Only enemies. Okay, he thought about it a moment. Let's have an enemy party. <laughs> Let's invite all your enemies, especially your worst ones. Let's fill them up with ice cream and cake and give them red balloons to take home. And that's what they did. And that enemy party was a smashing success. And the best time, he said, the best time was had by the biggest enemy of all, little Lola, who rolled on the floor and shrieked with laughter. Pat and Peggy never came home crying after school after that. Their biggest enemy had turned into their most loyal champion. But... One day, Lola's father came to see him. He said, I thank you for inviting my little girl to the, to the party. Then he added, why? Why'd you do it? Well, why not, I told him. She's a solid little citizen and likes ice cream and cake and red balloons just like any other girl, right? Oh, yes, he said. But you know something? Nobody ever asked her to a party before. Why? J.P. said, that was a good question. Are the Lolas of this world left out because they are enemies? Or are they, do they become enemies because they are left out? And then he concluded, there are several schools of thought working on this. But the great teacher settled it long ago and he said, just love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Christ's call to love is what we do positively, not just what we avoid doing. And if we're followers of Jesus, we have to take that seriously. It sound, may sound foolish, but it's a sacred opportunity to become part of his mission. That's what it is. To redeem enemies by loving and forgiving them and releasing them from all obligation to me. Christ's love is not only positive, it's practical. That is, it's not theoretical. It's not scholar talk. When he says, love everyone, love your neighbor, love your enemies, worded in different ways, here's the issue. I think it's easy for us to say, I'm a believer in Christ, of course I love God. It's easy to say, I'm a Christian, of course I love people but not think through what it means in practical life. What does it mean to love others? What does, it mean, what does it look like? Well, there are four Greek words that Jesus could have chosen from, or he did choose one of the, of the four, to express this special love that he's talking about. We use one word for all of them, and that's rather confusing. There's storge, 
And you've heard this, Steve's talked about this before, but I just remind you. Storge refers to family affection, the, the love of a parent for a child, a child for a parent, the family kind of love. Now, Jesus didn't use that word. It, is, it expresses an, ex, an affection that you feel. Eros, the love of a man for a woman, it always denotes passion, sexual attraction, those kind of things. And it's a passion that you either feel or you don't, and that certainly wouldn't be appropriate. There's phileo. Now, that's the warmest word for love in the Greek language. It describes a person's closest and truest friends. Now, that would pose a problem in that uh, if, if I had to treat everyone, including my enemies, as close, true friends. Not going to work. Rather, he uses the word agape. And uh, that refers to unconquerable, benevolent, invincible goodwill. Or, let's just put it in plain language, no, what, no matter what a person does to me, to us, no matter how he treats us or insults us or injures us or, or, or grieves us, we will never allow bitterness against him to invade our hearts and hinder our ministry. Because of agape love, we will treat that person with kind goodwill, just like God does to us. Kind goodwill that's quick to forgive, and it will seek nothing but the highest good for the person. So therefore, Jesus is not expecting us to love our enemies in the same way that we naturally have love for our family, Storge, or my wife, Eros, or my close friends, Phileo. It's not something that comes from great feelings. It's a matter of the will. It's a matter of the choice. So how do we love enemies? Now remember, this love isn't theoretical. It's practical. It's not enough to say, well, the Bible says I should love my enemies. I I think I do. I I kind of feel like I do. Uh, At least I try to. And then walk away and live as I always lived. According to Jesus, this is what he wants us as his followers to do. We love the others by concentrating on the welfare of the one who wronged me in some cases, or the neighbor who hasn't maybe wronged me yet but needs the love. Concentrating on the welfare by caring deeply for their good, by doing what I can to actually meet their needs. So starting at verse 7, do good to those who hate you. Well, that's pretty clear. If I'm just sitting in my house never doing good to any of those who are troubling to me, I guess I'm missing something. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. I think that pretty well fills my (laughs) obligations enough to keep me going. Paul puts it another way in Romans chapter 12. He quotes Proverbs 25 when he does it, so we know the same teaching was important for the God followers in the Old Testament as well as for the Christ followers in the New Testament. He says, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It's mine to revenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So revenge, if I might stop there, or making sure someone pays for the offense that they caused, 
or the wrong that they have done to me is God's job. We hinder his work when we do it because it says leave room for God's wrath. So if I'm spinning my wheels expressing my wrath or I'm not leaving room for his wrath and he can't do effectively what it is he says he does. And then it goes on to say, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, know this is hard. This is really hard. When we've been wronged, we so easily hold grudges or offenses. And when we do that, we are overcome by evil, always. There's no way around it. You might not feel it very, very much in some cases. It affects our lives and our joy and our ministry and our ability to interact with them. God's plan is that his people overcome evil with good. A number of years ago, I read a, a story I just love called Jelly Beans. And it's written by uh, a lady from one of our free churches in the, in the States quite a number of years ago. And I love the way she began. She says, the four of us were brand new Christians when we ran across the verse, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. We ran into it during our family Bible reading. I just love it. New Christians reading and hope, oh, what does this mean? Our sons, seven and nine, or seven and ten at the time, were especially puzzled. Why should you feed your enemy? They wondered. My husband and I wondered too. But the only answer that John could think of was to give the voice was, we're supposed to because God says so. Never occurred to us that we would soon learn why by experience. So day after day, their oldest son, John Jr., came home from school complaining about a classmate who sat behind him in fifth grade. Bob keeps jabbing me when Miss Smith isn't looking. One of these days when we're out on the playground, I'm going to jab him back. Now, I was ready. This is the mother speaking. I was ready to go down to the school and jab, job my, jab Bob myself. Obviously, the boy was a brat. Besides, why didn't Miss Smith do a better job of, with her kids? I better give her a, a verbal jab at the same time. I was still stewing and fuming over this injustice when the seven-year-old brother spoke up. Maybe he should feed his enemy. The three of us were startled. None of, none of us was sure about what this enemy business meant. It didn't seem like an enemy would be in the fifth grade. An enemy was someone who was way off, well, somewhere. And where that was still remained vague. <laughs> we all looked at Dad, since he was the head of the home. He should come up with a solution. But the only answer he could offer was the one he had already given, because God says so. Well... If God says so, you better, I said to John Jr. You know what Bob likes to eat. If we're going to feed him, we might as well give him something he likes. Roller son thought a moment and he said, jelly beans. Bob just loves jelly beans. So we bought a bag of jelly beans for him to take to school the next day. And we'd see whether our enemy feeding worked. That night we discussed the strategy to be used. When Bob, jab when Bob jabbed 
John Jr. in the back the next time, John would just simply turn around and deposit the bag of jelly beans on his desk. The next afternoon, I watched and waited impatiently, she said, for the yellow school bus to pull up and then dashed out the door to meet the boys before they even got halfway to the house. John called ahead, it worked, Mom, it worked. I wanted the details. What did Bob do? What did he say? Well, he was so surprised that he didn't say anything. He just took the jelly beans, but he didn't jab me the rest of the day. And she went on and didn't take long for the two of them to begin to become friends. And in fact, they became the best of friends, all because of that little bag of jelly beans. Then she shared, both of our sons became missionaries. Their way to show friendship with any of the enemies of the faith was to invite the inhabitants of those countries into their own homes and share food with them from their own tables. She says, it seems enemies are always hungry. Maybe that's why God said to feed them. So, Jesus' way to live out his love dynamically in the real world of difficulties and good friends and bad friends and people who wrong us and so on is, number one, to concentrate on my enemy's welfare. Number two, by not demanding my own rights. Living generously. And he gives three examples of this generous generosity in operation. Now, this is not normal for the people of this world, and I don't have time to flesh it out the way we could because I'm giving kind of an overview of the passage. And, but, you know, the people of this world say, this is stupid. This is foolish. People walk all over you. Maybe foolish, but we've got to decide, is it Christ-like? Is this being a fool for Christ? Listen to the three. 29. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, it was, a, it was an insult for an adult to slap another adult back then. Still is. <laughs> it was a double insult to slap them with the back of your hand, which it would take to slap them on the, right, on the right cheek. Now, you and I may never be slapped on the cheek, especially as an adult, but time again, life brings its insults. Some big, some little, they all smart, they all hurt. Jesus was saying that a true follower of Jesus as Lord learns to quickly forgive and never seek retaliation. Jesus is saying, even if a person should direct at you the most deadly insult, I don't want you to become resentful or bitter. I don't want you to hold an offense or a grudge. It's deadly. I think of Bill Taylor's message last Sunday. He reminded us of the importance of forgiveness by sharing Jesus' very pointed story of the two debtors. And as he told the story and came to the end, everybody recognized the ugliness of someone who's been greatly forgiven turning around and refusing to forgive. And Jesus said, hey, that's you, that's me. Some time ago, Nova got this book, The Bait of Satan. I think one of her sisters or maybe one of our daughters recommended it. I forget who, but John Beverer. And uh, he made, 
makes a very strong case that Satan destroys the effectiveness of Christians, of, of more Christians by tempting them to hold offenses than any other way. Satan's a, he's clever, he's a deceiver. He deceives us into thinking that we are the victim, that we're wronged, and God doesn't care. We're forgiven, and we're called to forgive likewise. He goes on to the next one, and I've got to rush over these. You just get the whole picture, and I hope you go back to the passage and reread it. Verse 29, if someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Jewish law allowed a creditor to take a tunic as a pledge till they got paid back, but not the cloak. The cloak was a blanket-like outer garment that was used by a robe by day and a blanket at night. It's often all that a poor person had for warmth. So he's saying no matter how much was owed, it was their right to keep the cloak for warmth. And the way Jesus is playing this out, he's really saying some people are forever standing on their rights, and I guess they have a right to do that, but Jesus says that isn't the kingdom way. This is a hard one. That isn't the kingdom way. We will have to each wrestle with that for ourselves. goes on, verse 30, Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. And I think the key word is demand it back. Uh, Matthew talks about this too, and he adds... Uh, about being, if you're compelled to go a mile, which a Roman soldier could compel a Jewish person to do, he said, hey, instead of fighting about it and getting mad, volunteer to go two miles. The Christian, our duty, if we have any duty, is to help others. That's our duty before God. It isn't easy. Like, <laughs> this is hard for me as for you. So we're in this together, and I'm walking us through it. I'm walking you through what I've been walking me through. You need to understand that. This is all about grace and forgiveness. This is not about a heavy load. This is about grace and forgiveness, and I have received it, and I find ways to give it. Number three, Christ's call to love was not only positive, it's not only practical or steps that he says you need to take, but it's clearly about the extra thing. It's about generosity. It's about grace. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But, he says it again, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. You know, what that really means is letting go of the wrong against me, even before the person apologizes. Letting go of the offense while a person is still acting like the enemy. Doing good and helping them even when I don't think they deserve it. Not having to defend myself and prove how much I'm in the right. And sometimes the enemy is your husband or your wife or your parent 
Sometimes the enemy is a, one of the children, a neighbor, someone from the past. I mean, all kinds of ways that enemies have appeared in our life and done something that made us grab on and, 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 and fall to the bait. We've got to trust God's process. If you sow the love of God, you'll reap the love of God. That's the process. Will it happen right away? I don't know how fast it'll happen. Maybe we'd never see it having happened. Somebody else might see it. We might not live long enough. That's God's process. He calls us to it. It's a beautiful process. It's not something to carry us a weight. It's something to say, wow, I can put something positive into life by the power of God and his grace. In January of 1990, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, Erich Honecker, who was the brutal and hated dictator of East Germany, some of you who come from Europe know all about that, more than I do, but he ended up sick and broke and homeless. He had made himself rich during his years as dictator, and he and his wife had lived in luxury. When the government toppled, the palace that they lived in was taken over, and they were kicked out. And their great bank accounts were frozen. And they were getting on in age, and he wasn't well. He had been the powerful dictator. His wife, Margot, was the minister of education. They were both so despised that no one could be found to provide them shelter, not even their daughter. Someone contacted Pastor Huey Homer. Pastor Homer had many reasons to have nothing to do with the Honickers. He had lived there a long time, perhaps all his life. I didn't uh, research that part of it. He had, he had watched as Eric Honecker had presided over the building of the infamous Berlin Wall. That was before he was a dictator. That was when he was high up in the Communist Party and he was given that job. The wall that had separated so many families, some who lived in West Berlin and some who lived in East Berlin or West Germany and East Germany. That wall had separated Pastor Holmer from his family in West Germany and kept him from even being able to attend his father's funeral. And he had even greater reason to resent Honecker's wife. She ran the East German Ministry of Education, and eight of Homer's ten children had been denied admission to any university just because of their faith in Jesus and because their dad was a, uh, uh, his ministry as a pastor. So everyone would, ex- and, there, and there were all kinds of grievances for sure, so everyone would expect Pastor Homer to turn Honecker and his wife away. Instead, this Christian pastor and his wife took them into their home. The very couple who had done so much to persecute their church and make their own lives miserable for so many years, and they even covered the cost of medical care that Honecker needed while they were there, out of their own pockets. They shared their home with that hated couple for ten weeks, two and a half months. During that time, he got a lot of angry phone calls, from people who criticized deeply, loudly, viciously their act of hospitality. According to one article I read, the Hanukkahs were actually became impressed with the Christian lifestyle they witnessed. At mealtime, just as they always did, the family said grace, read a short scripture, and sang a hymn. 
They learned during this time that Honecker had actually attended Protestant school as a kid until he was age 14 when he joined the Communist Party and then went totally the other way. The Honeckers were removed after 10 weeks to stand trial for treason. Only God knows what that did in their heart, for sure. Was that foolishness, like so many of their critics said? Or were they fools for Christ, doing Christ's work? What's the reason for such conduct, for such Christian conduct, for such Christian openness? Why would anybody do that? Why would anybody do the things that I've been sharing from this scripture? Clearly, it's because of Jesus. It's because of his grace. It's because in his grace and great love, he suffered for me and died for me. It's because he has forgiven me. He has forgiven me far more than I would ever have to forgive anyone else who wrongs me. We hear a lot about radical Islam these days and ISIS and all those things and their beliefs that they'll be rewarded for what they're doing. They'll be rewarding for, rewarded for giving their lives to kill and destroy unbelievers or anyone who is seen to help the unbelievers. The more infidels they kill, the better their reward, especially if they give their own lives in doing it as suicide bombers. Now, on the other hand, I guess what we've been talking about is what a radical Christian is like. A radical follower of Jesus. It's summed up in the last two verses. Verse 35, but, and again I'm picking up where we were. But love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. So be merciful as your father is merciful. Isn't that a wonderful way to be radical? To spread the love of Jesus? Please bow with me. You know, I believe this is where most of our spiritual battles are won or lost. In our sincere love for God expressed in generous, forgiving love for people, even those who have wronged us deeply. Now, it's a, it's a constant danger to me, so I don't stand preaching at you, I stand sharing with you. More pastors leave the ministry over feeling wronged and let down than probably any other reason, and are, as a result are no longer able to love freely and serve with joy. It's a danger to all Christians, and I don't think there's a Christian alive who doesn't have to struggle in this area. So if God's speaking to you, say, yes. With your help, Lord, I will love generously. And you'll have to show me how to do that. Christ's call to love may not be easy, but really, it's exciting and powerful, and when we live it out, our world needs it. If you need prayer, please feel free to ask. Steve and I would be very glad to come alongside you. We're fellow journeyers together. We need each other. Father, we commit each other to you. Whether we are new Christians or have followed you a long time, we still need your help to grow and live as sincere, obedient followers of Jesus. To learn to recognize the bait of Satan and not fall for it. 
And may you in your grace and mercy bless us with that and bless us to impact the world around us as we learn how to be radical Christians obeying you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Father, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Oh, yes.